Well, I'm going to continue our, our, steer, our series, our study in the book of John. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn to John chapter 7, or you can listen along. Sharon is going to read a, a large section. We're not going to cover all this in detail, but as she reads, would you, would you listen for something in particular? She's going to read a number of verses. Listen for the debate about who Jesus is. Listen for the various opinions that are swirling as she reads. Good morning. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 7, um, verses 14 to 31 and 37 to 52. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. 
Thank you, Sharon, for reading that, uh, that lengthy passage. Dr. Michael Horton suggests that for reading our Bibles, we think in a few different categories. Doctrine, I'm sorry, drama, got them wrong already. Drama, doctrine, and discipleship. I want to borrow those categories for our outline this morning. Drama, doctrine, and discipleship. The, the drama of this scene leading to doctrine or truth about Jesus fueling discipleship or what it means to follow Jesus. Drama, doctrine, and discipleship. First, the drama. The drama in the passage revolves particularly around who is Jesus Christ. Did you hear that as Sharon read? Who is Jesus? Some, some say in verse 20, uh, you have a demon. That's, that's flattering. You have a demon. <laughs> Who's seeking to kill you? And then from there, we've got various opinions about whether Jesus is really the Messiah, the Christ, the long-promised anointed one. In verse 27, some say, when the Christ, the Messiah, appears, no one will know where he comes from. Others, in verse 31, seem to believe, hey, when the Christ comes, will he perform greater signs than this man? Must be him. Later on, verse, verse 40, some say he's the prophet, the prophet that Moses promised. Others, 41 and 42, hey, no, the Messiah comes from Galilee. No, he comes from Bethlehem. And really, both were right. You've got this swirling speculation. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the long-promised anointed one? And Jesus answers that speculation in a very unique way. He answers that speculation, swirling about his identity through this feast taking place in Jerusalem. Verse 2 gives us the setting. It's the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. It might seem like a strange name, but it's, it's a feast that commemorated God's people wandering in the wilderness, and they built booths for themselves, kind of leafy structures there in the wilderness. And so they had this feast commemorating that time, commemorating God's provision, both then and now. So it was like a massive harvest festival. Think of our own Thanksgiving on steroids. You've got seven days of trumpets being blown, seven days of people praising God in the Psalms, and they're holding up branches in one hand and a piece of fruit in the other, symbolizing God's provision for them. And on top of all that, there was a, a kind of water ritual that they would enact at this feast as, as time went on and a tradition developed, a water ritual remembering God's provision of water from the rock in Exodus 17. And part of that also is giving thanks to God for rains, for the crops, and, and it was anticipating, you might say, the spiritual rain of the age of the Messiah to come. And so they developed this tradition where they would read as part of this feast from an interesting passage in the prophet Ezekiel chapter 47 where Ezekiel saw a river flowing from the temple and this river begins ankle deep 
and then it gets knee-deep, and then it gets waist-deep, and then it's so deep no one can cross it. And this river is supernatural that Ezekiel sees. It, it flows into the Dead Sea, and it becomes fresh water and gives life to all kinds of things. And along the banks, we are told by Ezekiel, quote, fruit trees of all kinds will grow, their leaves will not wither, every month they will bear fruit, because, quote, the water from the sanctuary, the water from the temple, the water from the temple flows to them. Their fruit will be for food, their leaves for healing. Now keep those words in mind. This scene is playing out at the temple in Jerusalem during this feast. And tradition tells us they would read from that passage in Ezekiel and they would enact it in a way the, the high priest would go to the pool of Siloam and he'd, he'd fill up a golden pitcher with water. He'd lead a procession of people up to the temple. And then he would pour this water every day during this feast into some bowls on an altar and they'd pour it out before the Lord. It was, as it were, a picture of that river that Ezekiel saw flowing from the temple, bringing life. And so that's what's happening in this festival. You've got people celebrating. It's a massive harvest festival. It's Thanksgiving on steroids. They're so grateful to God for, for water from the rock during the wilderness. Grain, uh, rains from the past year for the crops. And one day, one day, spiritual rain in the Messianic age. And with all of that ringing in people's hearts and minds for seven days, Jesus stands up with a loud voice in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his far heart, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. He's saying, in effect, I am that temple that Ezekiel saw with a river of living water flowing from it. I am the fulfillment of this entire feast. Do you catch the drama? What a dramatic moment. Leading, secondly, to doctrine or truth about Jesus. You might say, Tab, what, what in the world is all to do with me? Well, look at verse 39. John gives an explanatory note in verse 39. He said, now this he said about the Spirit. Oh. Oh. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the, the living water Jesus promises here, flowing from the hearts of those who believe, that living water, John now connects the dots, hey, that's God the Holy Spirit. So keep that in mind. Jesus is promising, as it were, a greater work of the Holy Spirit amongst his people for all who come to him thirsty and drinking from him. And he bases that promise on what? Did you catch it? He says, on the scripture, right? As the scripture has said. As the scripture has said. And here's the interesting thing. 
He's not quoting one particular passage. What it seems he's doing is pointing to how in many places in the Old Testament, the Old Testament anticipated a, a fuller, more powerful work of the Spirit. So let me, let me just unpack that for a moment. This, this sense of anticipation in the Old Testament that Jesus is alluding to. Let me unpack that with you for a moment. When John says here, as yet the Spirit had not been given. Don't misunderstand that. It's not that the Holy Spirit has never been at work in the earth prior to this moment. I mean, in Genesis chapter 1, we find the Spirit hovering there, right? Part of the formation of the earth. And in the Old Testament from there, surely the Spirit of God is shown to us to be at work in many ways. But, but generally speaking, generally speaking, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon particular people for particular tasks in the Old Testament. You might think of the judges that God raised up most famous of which probably being Samson. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Samson. He's got great strength. He rips a lion into two. He kills a multitude with the uh, donkey's jawbone. So you've got the Spirit coming upon particular people, mainly were shown for particular tasks, but there is this sense of anticipation as well. More is coming. More is coming. We find in Jeremiah 31... God promises a new covenant, a new relationship with His people. One in which He would take the law from outside of His people and put it within them and transform them from within. And then in Ezekiel, He tells us how He'll do that. He says in Ezekiel 36, quote, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. Did you hear that? I will put my spirit within you. Sounds a lot like rivers of living water flowing from within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. The prophet Joel tells us who will experience this instead of particular people for particular tasks like Samson and others. Joel chapter 2 looks ahead to a day when God promises all of His people will experience a fuller, more powerful sense of the Spirit's presence and work. Regardless of gender, he says, regardless of age, regardless of background or season of life, all of God's people will experience this. And that's just a bit of the anticipation that Jesus is pulling on when He says, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water flowing from within you, this, this fuller, more powerful sense, this new covenant sense and experience of the Spirit of God. But now, remember the context that we saw. Remember the context. Context is opinions swirling about Jesus. Is He the Messiah? Does He have a demon? What about Galilee? What about Bethlehem? Look at his signs. Yeah, but no one knows where the Messiah comes from. You've got the opinions of different people swirling about. And that seems to be what Jesus is in effect answering. As he says, whoever believes in me, in me, in me, 
As the scripture has said, as the Old Testament's been pointing toward, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water by which he met the Spirit. So what's he doing? He's saying, I am the Messiah. Here's how you can know, for I provide the life-giving Spirit. Making the connection with me? That's the main idea here. That's the doctrine. That's the truth we should learn about Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am that long-promised Messiah. Here's how you can know. I alone provide you with the life-giving Spirit of God. And John tells us he does this after he's been glorified. Verse 39. And in John's Gospel, Jesus is glorified particularly on the cross. He's glorified especially in his paying the death penalty for our sins, my sins and your sins, bearing the death penalty for our rebellion against God, and then rising from the dead, conquering the grave, and ascending back to heaven where he currently reigns. Jesus has already been glorified like that, of course. He's already poured out his spirit on his people on a day called Pentecost. So the truth, friends, the doctrine to bank on this morning is this. Jesus is the Messiah for you right now who provides for you, holds out to you the life-giving spirit of God. We've seen drama. We've seen doctrine. What are the implications for discipleship? Thirdly, discipleship. Well, Jesus' words in verse 37 are an invitation to discipleship. They are an invitation to follow Jesus Christ as a disciple, a learner, following him. When he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's an invitation to experience Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. From the wells of salvation, you'll draw water. That's an invitation to do that. An invitation to experience Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Without money, without price, come freely. Do you see the invitation? It's come and receive the free gift of salvation. The only requirement is that you're thirsty. For him. All you need is an awareness of your need. The only condition is that you see your soul's condition left to yourself. To see your spiritual lack, your spiritual deficiency, and you bring your soul thirst to Jesus. That's the invitation, first of all. Draw water from the wells of salvation freely. The problem is, isn't it, we, we tend to numb ourselves to that soul thirst. Like Novocaine for the soul. So many other things we use to numb and distract us from that thirst. We might use illicit drugs or excessive alcohol use. Or it might be focus on getting a boyfriend or getting a girlfriend or sexual activity outside of marriage or pornography or consume, being consumed with our own appearance or getting more and more money or all about 
our career and, and advancing our career or indulging social media or indulging too much entertainment. Many of those things are good things. But we can use them like a drug. It could be like Novocaine to numb your soul. Is that what you're doing right now? Have I hit any places where for you you're taking your thirst elsewhere? I Last week I bought a bottle of Gatorade and on the label it said, you know, the thirst quencher or something like that. I don't mean to be funny, but Jesus is like Gatorade for you. Friends, he is the true thirst quencher. That's right. So come to him freely to drink. Maybe you're a, maybe you're a young person here. Maybe you're a child. And you're listening and you're realizing, I have a soul thirst that I need to take to Jesus. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're a youth here and you've been trying to numb that thirst in other ways. Maybe you're a guest listening, realizing perhaps for the first time, you know, maybe I do need Jesus Christ. I feel empty. I feel dry. Nothing else is satisfying. I'm saying to you, come to Jesus Christ believing this morning. That's his invitation to you. An invitation to discipleship. Come freely, without money, without price. Come draw waters from the wells of salvation with joy. It's an invitation to discipleship first and foremost. Come to him, believing. But maybe for many of us here, many of us, you're already a believer in Jesus Christ. Already, you've drawn water from the wells of salvation, right? Already, you've come to Jesus to drink in that saving kind of way. Already, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Already, you have this experience of rivers of living water flowing from within, as it were. In a real sense, your soul's thirst has been satisfied, yes. But let's make some application nonetheless, shall we? Think with me for a moment. If, if the Christian life is lived, repenting and believing, if the Christian life is lived, turning to Jesus and trusting in Jesus, then couldn't we think of the Christian life in these terms or provided here? A continually coming to Jesus with your thirst, continually drinking, as it were, to be satisfied in Him again and again and again. I'm making application here. But can't we live in the good of this ourselves? A famous missionary to inland China, Hudson Taylor, thought this way. It, it made all the difference for him in the hardships, the difficulties, the trials of pioneering missionary life. He once wrote a letter to a, a woman asking for help, asking for ministry. And here's what he wrote. Just listen closely. He said in reply, I have the very passage for you. And God has so blessed it to my soul. John chapter 7, verse 37. 
any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And then Taylor writes, Who does not thirst? Who has not mind thirsts, heart thirsts, soul thirsts, body thirsts? Again, we're making application. Taylor says, Well, no matter which, or whether I have them all, come unto me and remain thirsty? No, come unto me and drink. What? Can Jesus meet my need? Yes, and more than meet it. Amen. No matter how intricate my path, no matter how difficult my service, no matter how sad my bereavement, no matter how helpless I am, Jesus can meet all and more than meet. That's one way to apply. You keep coming and drinking. You keep finding your greatest satisfaction in Him. You don't numb your soul. You keep coming to Jesus to be satisfied. And He can meet you. And more than meet you. But as I thought about this, in the context of John 7, and the significance of what we see here, the, the doctrine we see here, I think perhaps the most direct way to apply this is to see an ongoing, daily, continual reliance on the ministry of the Spirit poured out from the Messiah, Jesus. Are you with me? You're tracking with me? Here in John 7, Jesus is the Messiah who's been glorified. He's poured out His Spirit now upon, our, upon His people like He promises here. Now we enjoy this fuller, more powerful sense of the Spirit's ministry like we've talked about here. So what I'm asking is, don't we need that powerful, intimate, personal experience of the Spirit held out to us here on a daily basis? Don't you need that, friends? Yeah. We are living in the good of the fulfillment of this promise. The ministry, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the most direct way to make application if you're already a believer in Jesus. You know, the Gospel of John, if you're ever wanting, wanting to study the work of the Holy Spirit or the person of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of John is a great book to go to. It has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. Some translations refer to the Holy Spirit here as the paraclete, not the parakeet, the paraclete. And that's just an English form of a Greek word that we're not really sure how to translate very well, to be honest with you. It basically means one who comes alongside. It had a legal sense of a counselor, an advocate, but it's really, it's really one who helps you. So the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates helper or helping presence. I think that's helpful. What's being promised here, what believers today experience now is the helping presence of the Holy Spirit. And what I'm asking you is, don't you need that presence every day? There's a cliche we sometimes throw around. Well, God helps those who help themselves. 
Sounds right, doesn't it? Take personal responsibility. God helps those who help themselves. That's one problem. It's not biblical. <laughs> surprise, surprise, it's not in the Bible. In fact, it's antithetical to the Christian life. It's a call to self-sufficiency. Jesus is holding out the ministry of the Helper here, the helping presence of the Holy Spirit here, which we need every day. In fact, friends, in the Christian life, we're commanded to pursue that help. Did you know that? We're commanded to pursue on a regular basis the helping presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, where we read, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Or more literally, be continually being filled with the Spirit. It's a, it's a command to pursue a regular, ongoing filling or empowering of the helping presence of the Spirit of God. An analogy I've, I've heard another pastor use is that of one of those moving walkways at the airport. You've probably seen these. Go to a large airport and you're going to your gate, you're walking down the concourse and you know it, it looks like it's about a mile away and you're dragging your carry-on bag and you can walk there. You can eventually walk there. It might take you a long time but you'll eventually walk there. But many large airports the concourse, there's a moving walkway. And you can stand on it, but you... I don't like just to stand. I like to walk on the moving walkway. Why? Because when I'm walking on the moving walkway, I am cruising past those who are walking on their own. I am blowing them away. I'm leaving them in my dust. It's a great experience. I'm a fast walker. It's kind of like that, isn't it? I can go through my day walking on my own, dragging my little carry-on bag. But when I'm relying on the helping presence of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises in John 7, that God commands us to pursue in Ephesians 5, when I'm relying on the helping presence of the Holy Spirit, it's like I'm, I'm moving on the moving walkway. I'm, I'm being empowered with resources I don't have in myself. And there are three effects I'm making application with you. There are three effects of being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. Three byproducts of the helping presence of the Spirit filling you. Okay, Three of them in summary. Renewed worship, renewed thanksgiving, and renewed relationships. Anybody need any of those? Here's the ministry of the Spirit Jesus is holding out in John 7. In Ephesians 5, the effects are renewed worship, renewed thanksgiving, and renewed relationships, particularly in marriage, in parenting, and in your vocation. I want to think, think with you in those three categories as we, as we land this plane, so to speak. First, in renewed relationships. Where do you need the helping presence of the Spirit right now? In your relationships. Sometimes marriage is hard. Sometimes parenting is hard. Sometimes relating to your parents is hard. I understand, young people. Or caring for your elderly parents can be hard. Or pursuing your vocation, your calling, 
as a student or an employee somewhere. Those can be very challenging areas. Are you weary in any of those? Just dragging your carry-on bag? Look, there are resources available to you in the helping presence of the Spirit to meet you there right now. To fill you, to empower you, to help you apply God's Word and live for God's glory. Cry out to Him. I'm coming to you, Jesus, to drink. Holy Spirit, please fill me. Help me. Or think about renewed gratefulness. Renewed gratefulness that comes from the Spirit's helping ministry. The Holy Spirit helps us see the goodness of God in ways that I lose sight of. Don't we need that right now more than ever? Can't COVID-19 get you down sometimes? Nobody wants to amen that, right? <laughs> like it's a hard time in many ways. A lot of stress is on us. People are being polarized, pulled in different directions. It can sap your joy. You think government should be doing X and not doing Y. You think, you think your friends should be thinking X and not thinking Y. But the church should be doing X and the church should not be doing Y. I had a friend say to me recently, we need to have God raise our chins during this time. Lift our heads above it all. Look higher. Right? Fix our gaze on what is above. There's a lot of division. A lot of anger. A lot of fear. And the Holy Spirit's helping presence can meet you right there, friends. Take John 7, take Ephesians 5, and allow the Spirit of God to meet you right there. In the midst of your fears. In the midst of your anger. To help you set your mind on things above. To trust God. Maybe even be thankful for government, though you might not agree with every policy. Maybe to be thankful for friends, even though you don't see eye to eye on everything. Be thankful for your church and meeting in an amphitheater, even though you're getting a sunburn right now. The Holy Spirit helps us to see the goodness of God and renews us in gratefulness. And third category, maybe you need to see the Holy or experience the Holy Spirit's helping presence for renewed worship. Renewed worship. Dr. Horton actually has a fourth D, doxology. I held that back on you. Drama leading to doctrine for discipleship and doxology. Praise, worship. Why should you praise right now? Because you know what? Everything else will be made new one day. It's hard right now. We're singing, it is well with my soul. Help me. Blessed assurance. It's going to be all made new one day. Yes. That river that Ezekiel saw in chapter 47, that river shows up again at the end of your Bible in Revelation 22. Just listen. It's, quote, the river of the water of life. 
It's flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, Jesus. And on either side of the river, the tree of life, the tree of life appears at the end of your Bible as well, yielding its fruit. And just like Ezekiel said, the leaves of the tree were for the healing, but now the healing of the nations. Such a cool picture. That's where the pathway of discipleship is heading. That's why you can praise right now. Because all things will one day be made new. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. And so, even now, through those things, the helping presence of the Spirit can renew your praise. Jesus, your Messiah, provides the life-giving Spirit of God. Cry out to Him. Put aside self-sufficiency. Put aside thoughts of God helps those who help themselves. Get on the moving walkway. Every day. Daily, cry out for more of the Spirit's helping presence. Daily, come to Him and drink and be satisfied. Daily, ask the Spirit of God to fill you and renew you. And so let's ask Him to do that right now, shall we?